Today's episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast is proud to be partnered with Anchor Podcasts. Anchor is the easiest way for anyone to make a podcast. If you have a latent idea that's just kind of lying around for a show you would like to record one day, I'm confident that anyone could use this platform to host, record, and distribute your podcast, turning your idea into a reality. Anchor puts everything you need to be successful all in one place. You can start a new recording right from your mobile device. They also have convenient creation tools that allow you to edit your audio files so they sound crisp and great. Anchor also distributes your podcast for you, letting listeners find your show almost everywhere, including Spotify, Anchor Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and several others. And best of all, it's free. There are no hosting fees or monthly subscriptions or minimum listener counts, just an easy-to-use platform to get your podcast out there at no cost to you. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm today to get started. Do you like coffee? I know that you do, and that's why I want to tell you about Fresh Roasted Coffee. Fresh Roasted is a locally owned and operated coffee house right here in central Pennsylvania that is committed to providing the highest quality coffee on earth. They do so by sourcing only the freshest coffee beans and by using the most eco-friendly roasting technology in the world. Fresh Roasted's USDA-certified organic coffee beans ensure that your coffee is consistently regulated at each stage of the production process and completely free of GMOs and harmful synthetic substances. Fresh Roasted Coffee roasts their beans per order with immediate packaging and shipping directly to your door, meaning that you get to experience fresh coffee at its peak drinkability. That's what I like. I was introduced to Fresh Roasted Coffee soon after moving to central Pennsylvania, and I'm so happy I was because I think it's literally the best coffee out there. Their Blackbeard's Revenge blend is out of this world good. Whether you use a regular drip coffee maker or a pour-over or a French press, however you get your coffee fix, make it fresh roasted. Go to the link in the notes for this show and use the offer code GRACE10 at checkout. That's offer code GRACE10 at checkout to get a discount on your next order. podcast, a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in our messy ministries. I'm your host, Brad Gray. I'm the senior pastor of Stonington Baptist Church in Paxinos, Pennsylvania. Uh, today, I have the wonderful privilege of introducing uh, my longtime friend. Uh, we've done several episodes together. He's probably the most regular uh, visitor here on the podcast. Uh, it's uh, none other than Dr. Abby Tyler Todd. Uh, I'm so blessed to know Abby great pastor, a great friend, a great uh, brother in the faith, and I'm so thankful for his uh, ministry to me and to, for his friendship uh, throughout the years, and uh, I am so glad to have him on the show. We uh, were setting out to talk about one of his articles that he posted recently on his on the blog that he writes for over on the Majesty's Mend. It was a blog entitled, Have Southern Baptists Changed Theologically Since 1845? Uh, and then this article, Abby really identifies um, a moment, uh, a moment which many perhaps uh, forget, in which the Southern Baptists uh, in particular were not as perhaps united as we uh, like to remember, at least nostalgically. And so, uh, it, it, but through the course of talking about that article, we ended up talking about a lot of other issues um, and matters 
uh, and I would say, as the title of the podcast is, quandaries <laughs> that are facing the contemporary church, especially uh, the Southern Baptist Church. Uh, there is a lot of talking uh, going on, and uh, it is not our intent to add to the noise of the debates and the discussions uh, that are going on, but I think what this is, is uh, two uh, ministers thinking out loud about uh, conundrums and difficult questions that are facing the church, and what does it mean to um, be faithful and to be uh, consistent and to uh, be gospel-centered, if I can use that uh, phrase, uh, in a time in which there's a lot of murky waters that are surrounding um, the uh, this moment in history for the Southern Baptist Convention and the church at large, uh, evangelicalism as a whole. Uh, so me and Abby just dive into that and we talk about uh, sort of the current state of the SBC and we're trying to... Uh, champion and find a little bit of grace and hope and peace along the way. I hope you'll be blessed by this episode. I found this conversation really enriching. Uh, we both gave each other a lot of space uh, to just uh, think out loud, and I think that that's really uh, what is needed uh, in this time. And so I pray that you will find this episode uh, a blessing, uh, an enriching, and encouraging uh, listen. So enjoy. I know a lot of this is probably going to be um, is probably just rattling around your brain because of the dissertation you just finished and and whatnot. But I just figured to give you some space to think through a lot of it more um, because you can obviously think through <laughs> verbally sometimes easier than you can just writing stuff down. Um, or at least I'm that way sometimes. <laughs> um, sure. And because uh, I was just moved by what you were writing and just especially the fact that uh, when you consider the history of the Southern Baptist Convention, especially as you articulate back in the mid-1800s, and what they were dividing over seems uh, quite uh, uh, just so so much different than what we're dividing over now. And mm. um, I don't know, I was just really f- fascinated um, by what you pinpointed and um, what what were you hoping to accomplish? That's not even a right or good question, but what was really, what were you trying to pinpoint in the piece and, and what kind of things have like stuck with you after you, after you put it up? Um, well, that is, that article is the product of a lot of my research, not necessarily my dissertation. My dissertation doesn't have anything to do with the Southern Baptist Convention at all. It has to do with Richard Furman, who passed away 20 years before the Southern Baptist, the the, the first Southern Baptist Convention. Um, But in my research of Furman, I really started digging deeply into all of Richard Furman's disciples and all his buddies and all his protégés and um, Furman's network of Baptists a lot of them became the leaders of the, the Southern Baptist Convention. And so there's just, I was struck in my research by what a hodgepodge, I think I use that term. I'm sure there's a better intellectual theological term, but I like hodgepodge. There's like a hodgepodge of 
Southern Baptists at that first convention in 1845. And in my, of course, I attended the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, and I have a decent understanding of Baptist history. And I think that I've, as someone who has read fairly widely, I, I think that James P. Boyce, the first president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, I think he gets more of the press because one, he's was just such a seminal thinker for future Southern Baptists. He was obviously a, a fundamental leader in Southern Baptist education. And one, his theology is so pristine and it's so ordered and it's so it, it's good theology for the most part. It's 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 not um, it's not completely drawn from Charles Hodge, but uh, just to kind of give you some background there, James P. Boyce studied under Charles Hodge at Princeton, and so there's a very Westminsterian bent to James P. Boyce's theology. Um, obviously not all, but, you know, it's striking to see in James P. Boyce's systematic theology, he calls the Westminster Confession our confession, um, which is staggering to a lot of Baptists to call a Presbyterian confession ours. Uh, but that's just how close his theology came to the Westminster. So that's the kind of intellectualist um orderly theology, clean theology in some ways um, that James P. Boyce has. And so anyway, historically speaking, all of the the press has gone to James P. Boyce, but we forget that a good 20 years before James P. Boyce, a good 30, 40 years before he pins his systematic theology, there were a lot of other Southern Baptists who did not necessarily agree with James P. Boyce's theology. And so we can't just say that James P. Boyce, that, you know, since he was the president of the seminary and because he was so influential that, you know, Southern Baptists for the most part, our founders of the convention must necessarily have just believed everything he believed. And that's just by, that's just not true at all. Hmm. And so what most Southern Baptists today don't know and what a lot of Southern Baptist pastors don't know is that the array of doctrines that were held in that first convention in 1845 would really shock us today if we really got down and, and really saw what many of these men believed. Some of them bad, some of them not. I mean, of course, then there's the, you know, that's not even talking about the the blatant immorality and callousness of why the convention convened in the first place which was, of course, slavery. Um, you know, th this, this kind of um, what I'll call Southern lost cause mythology, uh, where, you know, you'll still get a lot of people here in the South who will say the Civil War wasn't about slavery and so on. Um, you don't really get that as much. Uh, you don't get that mythology as much about the Southern Baptist Convention because for two reasons. One, in 1995, the the Southern I believe it's 95, the the Southern Mass Convention issued a public, what was essentially a public apology denouncing the origins of the convention. Um, so they 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 owned it. Uh, it's undeniable, and of course it's undeniable because there's there are documents, most notably 
William B. Johnson's address of the convention, which is a three to four to five page document outlining exactly why they were doing what they were doing. And so we can't escape, as Southern Baptists, we can't escape the origins of the convention. And I think for the most part, Southern Baptists, you know, the leadership, they have done a, a lot in recent years to acknowledge the past. Uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary issued a, um, I, I believe it was about two or three years ago, Greg Wills, Jarvis, Williams, and a team was tasked by President Moeller to essentially address the the, the origins um, and the and the racial beliefs of the founders of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, basically, getting out in front of of it all and saying, "Okay, what did our founders believe about black people?" Um, and it was a very sobering document. I feel like it was well done. It was very thorough, very comprehensive. Greg Wills, who I think was on the, who was at the the top, or I guess led the the team. He, of course, it was head of the Baptist history department. I believe he was the dean of the school of theology at the time. And Greg Wills actually wrote the biography of Southern Seminary, so he's one of the top Baptist historians. And so he just, it was just a, it was just well done. So, and of course, you had Fred Luter who 10, 15 years ago was the first African-American president of Southern Baptist Convention. That's by no means to, all that is by no means to say that Southern Baptist Convention has fully dealt with the issue of race. And I'm sure we'll get to that later. Um, but it is, it is important to acknowledge that certain steps have been taken to try to at least acknowledge where our, our, our beginnings are. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, you're you're an independent Baptist, so I don't know. That that's what makes this conversation so fun. Is like you're theologically you're similar, but culturally you're might be worlds apart. Well, uh, I was going to say I feel like I have a little bit of carte blanche to say whatever I want because I'm not <laughs> my uh, yeah. theological pinnings are not uh, you know specifically tied to the way that the convention goes but i am interested in their conversation because i think i mean i can't really tell you if there's a a baptist who is influential who is not a southern baptist um per mm. se and so i think that in large degrees when someone says the term baptist they're they're not thinking of an independent pap a church pastor they're thinking of a convention or committee member who goes to all of the big events and who has some level or measure of influence. And I think that whether that's right or wrong, I'm not trying to make a remark on. I just think it's interesting to see their conversation because as they are viewed, so I think I am viewed kind of tangentially. And <laughs> that's true. I've well, never thought about that. Well, I think that that's just the colloquial thing. They don't have, people don't really divide. Well, I'll just say this too. Like this is the conversations that are driving a lot of the uh, online rhetoric. It's not really come into a lot of the, you know, conference type spheres yet. I think it has a little bit, um, but the online rhetoric is just uh, some of the things that you pinpoint in your in your piece also, um, but are you know driven around 
the hot button issues of the day, uh, social justice, uh, critical race theory, and female preachers. And I think <laughs> the conversations that are being um, had around those things are, I th- and, and you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, but I think what you're trying to say, at least in your article, is that it's almost better that we're having these sorts of conversations as opposed to the conversations that were happening 175 years ago. Uh, maybe I misread you, but I think that that's because uh, we're not arguing over, or at least not in large part, we are in some corners of the of the convention, I would say, I guess, arguing over penal substitutionary theory. Um, am I wrong on that? Or is that kind of what you're trying to say? Yeah, uh, I, I'm trying to acknowledge that we have been through far more trying times than we are now. I'm not diminishing the importance of addressing critical race theory and of course critical race theory being, you know, being tied to the issue of race. And I'm not diminishing the the very important issue of gender and women preaching and and what have you. I'm just simply, you know, when when Tom Askell at Founders says that mm. this is like the most important this is the most important time, you know, or this is the most important challenge or daunting challenge that Southern Baptists have faced. And he, and I don't want to, I don't know he said that word for word, but he essentially, he essentially insinuated this was the, this was the, the most um, daunting challenge that Southern Baptists have ever faced before. Um, hmm. And it was the most important time to really rally together. And I'm like, uh, don't say that. That's just so dismissive of, all that Southern Baptists have been through the very founding of the convention itself. We, we, we've come from a convention that was inaugurated under the idea that image bearers of God could be enslaved. Hmm. Uh, We've come from the conservative resurgence when, where, you know, people were teaching in Southern Baptist seminaries that the Bible was not the word of God. It was not infallible. It was not inerrant. I mean, we've been through so much. So that so back to the piece. The piece is really just showing and demonstrating um, how let one, let's not let's not try to mythologize the founders as if they were just the most doctrinally sound people, and yet we've gone, we false <laughs> the, the the apple has fallen so far from the tree. Uh, no, they were pretty heterodox at times and we need to understand that um southern baptists have in some sense always been a really rowdy bunch Hmm. um there's really just never seemingly never been a time where we were all on the same page on social and doctrinal issues um I mean, the, the irony being that Southern Baptist was probably the only time they were ever together on one social issue was when they came together to promote slavery in 1845. Hmm. Um, so the piece was really just about trying to learn from our past, understand that we have come a long way. We're passing resolutions in 2017 affirming penal substitution. Um, we are now doing a lot for 
um, trying to defend the defenseless when it comes to domestic violence and abuse, you know, Russell Moore's work in the ERLC, um, and, and, and trying to acknowledge that there has been, a, you know, right now we, we're, we, all our Southern Baptist seminaries have professors who I believe unanimously affirm that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. Um, I am not with, um, I'm not, I, I do believe that critical race theory and, you know, the issue of gender and, and women preaching and, and whatnot, I'm, I'm of the persuasion that those should be addressed and we should be honest about standing next to biblical principles. But I'm also not about sensationalism and saying that, you know, this is the worst thing that Southern Baptists have ever faced. That's just not true. Mm. Um, so, um, I think also the beginnings of the Southern Baptist Convention, it really, once we see how we started, we appreciate more about how far God has brought us to this point. Um, I'm not a, I was not raised Southern Baptist, so I don't think this is about us having, this isn't about us touting our Southern Baptistness. Um, but it is about at least showing that God has used the convention for a lot of good things and that God is beginning to, um, you know, he, it's, there's, there's a lot of good that's happening in the convention and we shouldn't make light of that. Um, I, I, and I think most people, you know, just to be, be frank, I think a lot of people just don't realize that people like William B. Johnson did not affirm penal substitution. Uh, he didn't, he didn't believe in creeds. Um, you know, that, that they don't, they don't know that, uh, governor Wilson Lumpkin was one of the leading politicians behind the trail of tears. Um, you know, they, there's just a, such a broken, such a, a cast of oftentimes sinister characters. Um, and I'll tell you this, I mean, if, it, if I have to pick between, a professor who probably dabbles in a little bit of too much in critical race theory and Wilson Lumpkin, who's essentially trying to remove tens of thousands of Cherokee Indians in, in the trail of tears. I mean, I'll, I'll take my, my critical race theory a little bit. Um, so I don't know. I, I just think, um, I think that the issue of race has always plagued the Southern Baptist convention. And I think the more honest we are about where we've come then the more, honest we can be about uh, how to deal with the challenges today and why the issue of race is con is so sensitive uh, in our convention. Well, we've talked about this before, too, because <clears throat> there's this notion of, of if we can either whitewash, and I don't mean that in like a racial way, but just get, if we can get rid of um, certain parts of our history, then it's like it never existed. And if we don't have to confront mm. it, then we don't have to be faced by it. And I just, and, and it's, it's, you know, not to use that, you know, colloquial phrase, you know, if you're, if you forget the past, you're doomed to repeat it or whatever. But in some ways, I think it's true. It's if you, if you don't have a, a working knowledge of, I, I would say, perhaps of where you've been it's hard to forget the context of where you are now and i think um, this leads me to go back to psalm chapter 72 i think it is because in psalm uh, let me make sure i'm in the right passage um it, 
it just jumps out to me because um, so many people, this was the whole, um, not Psalm 72, I think it's Psalm 78. Yeah, it's Psalm 78 because remember a couple of years ago when, and I, and I don't know what your feelings are in this per se, but it, when there was this huge movement, and I, I guess it's still going around, I don't, I don't know, to, you know, tear down all these Confederate statues and these, um, these monuments of Confederate history and such because they were racist. Um, um, I just, I really balk at that idea and not because I'm like, I want the South to rise again, but I have this, just this frustration with this, with this idea that if we can just forget that this history ever happened, that we will somehow be better for it. And I just feel like that is a very, very flawed um, perspective and way to go about actually producing change and consensus and conversation because um, <laughs> trying to change all the street names from people that um, have wronged or erred is going to be a, 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 an endeavor in futility, I think. And I think, in, well, at least in my interpretation, that's exactly what Psalm 78 kind of proves um if i don't know if you remember but in psalm 78 the asaph the psalmist he takes uh his people uh through 72 verses about their own history the people of israel's history about how they did this and they rebelled and how they did this and and it was deliberately something that was against their father uh the heavenly father and he just goes through it and it is a i think to me it's a confrontation of Here's your history. Don't forget it. All of this bad, sucky stuff that you've done in your past, don't ever lose sight of it because this is what is going to be the most prescient issue or the most relevant thing, most resonant thing that can teach you about how your Heavenly Father loves you and how He is covenanted to be patient with you. And that mm -hmm. to me is, I think, what is essentially or it's one of the things that just jumps out to me with, with your piece and I, not just Southern Baptists as a, or not just Southern Baptists, but I think Christians of all uh, denominations per se, but especially Baptists, not to forget the things that made us the way we are. And, and because I don't know that tendency to whitewash history, I think is really um, just flawed and futile. I don't know. Uh, those are just some thoughts. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I, I agree. Uh, I believe that history is um, not something that is necessarily prized by modern scholarship today. I mean, obviously, you've got you've got books like "The Praise of Forgetting" by David Reif. Um, you know, it's the whole book is just essentially by why we don't need historical memory um, about slavery and genocide and things. We shouldn't, we shouldn't have to remember those things because they're just too painful. Um, I, I, I'm with you on understanding, especially if somebody lives in the South uh, that we, we, we are all products of our past and we have to, we have to learn from our past. I mean, obviously the Bible, uh, Jay Gresham Machen would say that the Bible is a historical document. It, it, it's not just the, the God breathed word, but it's also a, 
a history book in some sense that, you know, God, it's a narrative of God's dealings with his people. Yeah. God uses history to teach us. Obviously he told, you know, the, the, the Israel, you know, the, the nation of Israel and the parents to always recall and, and teach their children, the things that God had, has done, you know, he, part of the discipleship in the new Testament church is recalling the things that God has done. It, the statue issue is tough because I, as the father of two black children, I, I don't think we should, I don't think we're necessarily have to get rid of the statues. I, I just, I, I, I don't know if the statues necessarily belong in the center of town. Hmm. Um, I try to put myself in my black brothers and sisters shoes well, it's it, it, here, here's how I, here's how I'll kind of explain it. The Supreme Court, when they defend a baker's right to reject making a cake for a homosexual wedding, well, the idea is that is the is the the, the freedom of conscience and the, the right of conscience to the baker, the Christian baker doesn't have to take part in something that basically symbolizes the very thing that they believe is sinful. And the Supreme Court, when they defend the Christian baker or the, the state courts or what have you, they're not saying that that those homosexual that homosexual couple doesn't have the right to have a cake they're just saying they don't have the right to make someone make a cake for them who believes that they're taking part in something that's sinful um and 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 to apply that broadly to the the statue debate i don't believe we we don't believe we have to tear we don't have to take down the statues but i do think there's one there's a difference between taking I think like Elihu Yale at Yale University he owned slaves James P Boyce at Boyce College he owned slaves he did not he did not found the the, the school itself as a as a the school itself was not necessarily founded as those schools aren't founded as, as institutions which promote slavery explicitly. And so I think that we don't necessarily have to take down the, the, you know, the legacy of those people necessarily or take down their names, but, but putting up a, a putting up a statue of a soldier in the, in the center of town who fought, explicitly to enslave people um i don't know maybe i maybe i'm just of the mind that we could maybe find a way to still preserve that history and keep it but not eulogize it in the very center mm -hmm. of town as if it's the mm -hmm. most important statue we have yeah um that's where i come with come down with it um because i i just i don't know having black children has shown me to try my, my kids are just not going to look at that statue the way that I am. Mm. Um, and I just, and I've got, I've got, uh, African-Americans at my church, African-American deacons, African-American elders. Um, and 
I race is so tough, man. We just we have such a we have such a awful history in this in this country, and I think mm-hmm. the church is called to try to balance the not erasing the history. That's that's what the secular historians want to do, and of course, as a, as biblical historians, we need to understand, like you said, that history is important and we needs to it needs to be preserved, not not as a weapon, but as a tool and as a learning yeah. resource. Yeah, you say that in your piece, which I think is so astute. Uh, you say that hi- history should never be wielded as a weapon, nor should it be simply dismissed as if the past can be shelved in a closet and simply forgotten. And I think, yeah, yeah that yeah, keep going. But I just no, want to no, no, no. because I think that's good. <laughs> yeah, that's it's. I think it's the I think it's the church's job. The church has to step up and 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 be knowledgeable of history. Um, Mm -hmm. we, we're the people who are, we're the people of the book. We're the people who believe in a 2000 year old savior. Mm -hmm. Uh, we believe in a, in, in a Bible that has, you know, in God's word that has flourished for millennia. And we should be the people who uphold the importance of slavery, but on just being good stewards. Um, I don't know. I, I just, I think in terms of the Southern Baptist Convention, it's, you know, people go, why are we dealing? Why, why is this? Why is this so? Why are we always talking about race? You know, why are we always talking about, be, you know, uh, being woke? You know, why are you always being so sensitive around? Well, look at how we started. Look at the look at the legacy we have. Look at the the. You know, people. I hear this all the time. I mean, that was what was that? When are we gonna when are we gonna outgrow that? I mean, that was two hundred years ago. Well, I mean. You you can't you can't get away from from history. You can't, especially when you're the denomination itself was forged out of slavery. We can't just dismiss. Um, we can't just dismiss people when they talk about, um, you know, how we need to be more sensitive to race. Now, of course, you know, a lot of that I think is due to our culture and how woke we are now and 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 a little bit of it is is probably due to critical race theory um i don't know but i i i just think that it's important for our for our convention to understand and always be empathetic to people who might be who might feel ostracized by joining a church that was forged um, largely to enslave their ancestors, um, mm. or because they believed in that right. Um, so anyway, that that piece was just just trying to educate Southern Baptists and Evangelicals and, and Americans on um, tr- how to how to better understand why the Southern Baptist Convention continues to work out issues of race and gender. Because, I mean, the issues of race and gender are linked. They're very different, but they are linked. And they what do they have in common? White male leadership and the idea that white males won't are holding on to their power when they need to give it up. Hmm. Um Okay, you you guys are you're talking about critical race theory, uh, like the, you know you, you 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 white the white males continue to dominate the leadership, and you 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 guys need to just let the women preach too without stop you know stop being male chauvinist and start you know start stop trying to hold on to your power and start giving opportunities to 
to women who are called. Um, or, um, you know, white males continue to marginalize and ostracize uh, our black leaders. Um, so that, that, that concept of white authority is, is endemic to both of those issues. The first two steps, I think, toward having a reasonable conversation about critical race theory and uh, women preaching is to do two things. One, acknowledge empathy and compassion and contrition about the things that have gone on and taken place in our convention um, so that people can see that we have a heart after Jesus um, and that we 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 are we have compassion for those people who do who might feel marginalized and offended, and then and then and then stand on God's word. So, for instance, um, you know, the the issue right now with women preachers in our convention should a woman should a woman preach um, should a woman preach uh, on on a Sunday? Well, I believe that First Timothy two pretty clear on that um you know and, and i'm i'm obviously up open for debate on that uh but but regardless if even if i stand and say even if i stand on god's word and say hey i believe that god has created or, or, or ordained that role for for the the shepherding and the preaching of god's word and the in the in the, in the pastoring of god's people I believe that God has designated that as a male-only role. Um, it, I, I think that I can say that and still be empathetic and still not call Beth Moore a heretic. Um, or I can I can maybe have that conversation with Tom Askell about critical race theory, and and say, you know, Tom, I I, I don't know if it's quite the problem that you think it is. Um, but I do think you're right that we need to be aware. We need to we need to have that for a First Timothy a mentality where we need to defend truth and we need to, um, you know, we need to stand on God's word. Um, I don't know if I'm babbling, but I think that I think that right now what's needed most in our convention is an honest approach to Scripture with a little bit of empathy and compassion that we need to understand that we don't want to forsake the gospel and the integrity of God's word, but we also don't want to lose our integrity. Um, which I think a lot of Southern Baptists right now are, are talking past one another because they're just so angry. Um, I don't know. This is that that's where the past can help us because if are, are we so why, why, you know, we should have the same outrage. I don't know. Do you, I, I don't know if I had, uh, I might be kind of rambling at this point, but I, I do feel like um, history helps us to have a little bit more empathy and compassion for people for for marginalized groups in our denomination. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it goes back to your comment earlier about sensationalism, because there is that notion that we're in the worst times of the end times, and um, and I just. I don't know how true that is. You know, we read those verses in the epistles about how the end times, the last days are perilous and they're going to wax worse and worse. And I feel like we're in that worse and worse stage, which I don't know if we are or not, but I just know that there's been other things that have come down the pike that, um, you know, we have dealt with as not only a denomination, but as, you know, in Protestantism as a whole, 
um, have weathered or attacked or not even attacked, but resisted, I, I think, to a large degree. And I think that's essentially, I, I always go back to the, well, I'll go back to this too. I, I remember I called you like, I don't know, maybe it was a year and a half ago or two years ago. Um, maybe not that long, but maybe that long. I don't know. Uh, when a lot of this, you know, social justice conversation was just hitting a fever pitch. And I remember I called you because I, I, I highly value your insight and your judgment on everything, because it's just like what to, how to make sense of these conversations. And I remember just asking you what to make of it. And <laughs> I don't really remember us coming to a resolution, which I think is the whole point is that no one really has yet. <laughs> um, other than mm. the fact that it's, uh, uh, we just need to w worry about Jesus. <laughs> but I think, and I have this, I have this note in, in you know, I, when I do writing, I, I write in this, uh, in, a, in an app and, it, and I have this note uh, on a, on a piece that will probably never see the light of day, but it's something I go back to often just, trying to in my own head make sense of you know 13 different perspectives on social justice and critical race theory and all these things and how does that make sense and how does it jive with the gospel that jesus um preaches and presented and uh, uh, manifested and evidenced in himself and um it's just i think it's and maybe i'm being too reductive and you can correct me if i'm wrong but I feel like one of the reasons why that piece will never see the light of day is because I feel like that is almost playing, and maybe I'm being too hyperbolic, but it's almost playing into the devil's cards, which is if people that are not saved and unregenerate, if they are seeing this type of infighting, what are they not hearing? They're not hearing the remission of sins. Mm -hmm. And mm. I'm not saying that they're not important, but I'm saying that they're not as important as, as preaching a gospel that is about the remission of sins from eternal damnation in hell instead of this gospel or good news is able to correct or realign or reorient your, uh, your, your views of humanity. Um, I think there's a difference. And, I think that's, I've just been burdened with not getting so uh, sensational. You know, like Solomon says um, in Ecclesiastes, where he writes about how there's nothing new under the sun. And there's there's no new sort of form of rebellion. It, not in terms of it's, not in terms of, perhaps the content but in terms of the attitude and in terms of the heart all of it is the same as it's ever has been man looking to fabricate his own god likeness and Amen. i'm i've just been burdened by the fact that we need these are conversations that need to be had but preeminent above all of it is a conversation about the remission of sins for people that don't know jesus and Amen. I, I just don't want that to get lost in the dialogue. And I feel like to a certain degree it is, <laughs> at least it was for me. And that's why I'm not on Twitter anymore because it was just, 
just a constant. Why soul? <laughs> it was a deluge of this type of conversation. And I don't know how profitable it is, at least in terms of like a public sphere. I think it's profitable, like, um, you know, intercongregationally. You know, if you have a congregation that's um, views has one perspective and another one that doesn't have the same perspective, it's I think it's beneficial for them to come together and have that conversation. But for someone, I don't think the atheist needs to know what we believe about social justice. They need to be reminded that there is a God and. He came to be like them so that they could be like him one day too. And I just, I don't know. That I don't. I, maybe I'm being reductive. Yeah. No, that. you're. No, you're. You're. You're being. You're being very, um, very Christocentric and gospel centered <laughs> and putting the first name first. I think you're doing what we should do, which is think about the the. The, the message of the saving Christ being the, the, the first thing that we put in, in ministry, it, it's tough. Uh, it's, it's really tough. We got to, I mean, uh, social justice is just a very hard issue to attack. I, I, I don't, at our church, we just, we don't, we don't address social justice as a social issue we just try to put social justice we just we just try to put we try to frame social justice more as you know are we loving our neighbor are we fulfilling the second second commandment if we if we talk more about the first commandment and loving the lord our god with all our heart soul and mind and and doing that with the gospel then i think we you know we just try to frame it as Okay, are we are we now loving our neighbor and trying to be mm. empathetic and understanding and trying to have compassion and kindness for people and um, each side is saying something important and we need to listen to them and mm. I don't think that we need to dismiss either side. I, I think Tom Askell and Jared Longshore and those guys uh, at Founders they have a they have good points to make about. Mm about the dangers of critical race theory. I believe, I, I, I think there was a definitely a good piece by Owen Strand that was written uh, last week or the week before, uh, kind of breaking it down. I think we're going to hear more and explanations about what critical race theory is and what it, where it comes from and things like that. So I, I think, mm-hmm. and I also think Russell Moore, I don't think Russell Moore is a theological liberal. I don't think that he's a social justice warrior. I, I, I think that ERLC does great work. Uh, I'm one of those people that probably, I don't know. I mean, there's got to be a lot of Southern Baptists like me who think that, who thank God for the work that Russell Moore does uh, and also think that uh, John MacArthur is an incredible preacher. Mm -hmm. I just don't see why I have to pick between those two. Um, (laughs) I'm not in anyone's quote unquote camp. And, and I and I don't think I have to be. It, this isn't about us versus them. Um, mm-hmm. What I what I don't stand for is thinking that one social justice is more important than the gospel. What I don't stand for is us calling people heretics who disagree with us. And um, 
I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying. I think, I think blessed are the peacemakers, especially now. I'm a, I'm a peacemaker, and I try. I'm trying to find common ground because I, I, I do think that, um, I do think there is, I do think there's a real movement going on right now with women preaching that is due to the culture. And it stems from this false perception that men want to keep women down. And that's just not true. The people, just because people believe that men, just because people believe that first Timothy two means that only men are called to be pastors or that only men can preach, that doesn't make them male chauvinist pigs. Um, we just have to wipe away the the the, the stereotypes a bit, and mm. um, I I think the I think what's what's especially difficult right now is, for instance, the Southern Baptist Convention, the the Baptist Faith and Message two thousand only says that women can't be pastors. I don't believe it says that women can't preach. Um, if you want to know at our church, at, at the Church of Haynes Creek, we believe that only men are called to preach the, the the word of God in the gathering of the saints on a Sunday morning in the corporate worship. We we believe that that is that is a something for only men can fulfill. And in corporate worship, the, the gathering of the saints in the church being either Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday. That's you know, but we have had women lead uh, a Sunday school. Um, we have a woman who's led a Sunday school with her husband. You know, we believe that Priscilla and Aquila and Acts gives us, for instance, just one example of how women can lead in the teaching of men in a setting where there is a, you know, there's a team, there's a couple. Um, you know, I'm not beyond a woman leading a small group. Um. You know, and that doesn't make me a liberal. But neither does me believing that a man has authority over his wife make me a bigot. Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but I, 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 I am conservative. I am a conservative complementarian, but I'm also not willing to, you know, for instance, you know, J.D. Greer, who doesn't have a problem. I don't think J.D. Greer has a problem with women preaching at his church. Um, I'm not going to call J.D. Greer a liberal, and I'm not going to just, you know, denounce him. I don't agree that women should preach in the in the gathering of the, the body of the saints. I think that um, I think that, you know, that's what I think that the Bible speaks very clear about that. But I'm not. But I do believe that there is room for fellowship for people who disagree with me on that issue on certain points. Um, but. You know, I do. I, 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 I believe that the Bible speaks very clearly on that, and and that is where I stand on the do, the doctrine of uh, manhood and womanhood. Um, and so, I, I don't know what your thoughts are on complementarianism and women preaching, but those those are kind of some of mine. <laughs> well, I would. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not gonna. I hate to just say ditto, but I do agree with almost everything that you have just iterated. But I think to a larger degree, you knew knew we were going to get here. Um, I think it all comes back to ESPN and Star Wars. And, um, And what I mean by that is, I think coupled with this sensationalist sort of viewpoint of everything, 
is this also this idea of we are so polarized and I'm going to blame ESPN for it because, you know, they had that show that ran for a long time called first take or hot take. I don't know what it was. And they had whatever arbitrary issue it was in some realm of sports. They had two people, mainly Stephen A. Smith and what's his face, Skip Bayless debate this issue and they had to come down on one side or the other it was either this or it was that and it wasn't there was no room for discussion and I think that's what's lost a lot of times in a lot of these areas is there's no room for an actual conversation it's all posturing and it's all positing one side or the other and you can see this most clearly um, and um, I don't mean to equate complementarianism with the legacy of Star Wars, but uh, when The Last Jedi came out a couple of years ago, it was so polarizing and there was no room for conversation on whether it was a legitimate entry in the Star Wars canon or whether it was or it ought to be vilified and and all that kind of stuff. And there was no room for actual enjoyment of it as a piece of entertainment became a polarizing force that actually has to a lot of degree um kind of ruined star wars for a lot of people and i think that that's i'm not saying it's important i just i just think it's really (laughs) it's really resonant because it kind of uh, is a really good portrait of where we are as a society in terms of looking at an issue and seeing it uh, in terms of black and white and which I'm not saying there's no black and white issues, but I will say that there's a lot more room, uh, for conversation than I think we think there is. And even on issues like complementarianism, I think we, because it's in the scripture and we see it in black and white doesn't necessarily mean that it is. And, um, and I'm not saying that, that, that there's no truth by which we can stand. I'm just saying that there these were there was a there's a lot of contextual things that i don't think we often grasp that were written because of what they were enduring in the first century that we aren't enduring we're reading it with sort of a 21st century mindset that we are applying onto a first century text and i think that goes back again to this understanding of history thinking in terms of a first century Palestinian is going to be a lot different than uh, how we think of what they were thinking. Does that make sense? I don't know. I just yeah. No, I I think you're right. I I think you're right. I I think there's obviously some. I think that the the while while God's design for a for biblical womanhood is the same, theologically speaking. I do believe that there are circumstances and situations that arise in the 21st century church that are different than the first century church. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I that's why you know, do you th- do you ever see do you ever see Priscilla going on tour and speaking at different <laughs> churches in? you know, in Macedonia because she just had a book deal and there were thousands of people wanting to hear Priscilla teach. You know, I, I just don't see that ever would have happened. Mm. Um, you know, you know, 
Peter, you know, Peter's wife wanted to really go. She really wanted to hear Priscilla talk. So she brought Peter with her, but they didn't, but they didn't, it wasn't in a church. It was in an auditorium. Um, You know, I just, (laughs) those are, you know, I think right now, you know, where I think the biggest difference is right now, you know, trying to triage this thing, the biggest differences right now that it, that exist right now with complementarianism are what to do with the small group setting. What, what about the Sunday school setting? What about, okay, well not, not Sunday, but what about Wednesday night? You know, those kinds of things like those, I really think there's, there are grades of differences even within complementarianism on when and how and where a woman can preach and talk. And I'm with you there in, in maybe extending some some latitude in understanding that, you know, we have to be empathetic and in a little understanding that there's going to be differing views on those modern issues. Um, I, I just think that, um, you know, whether you want to call it soft complementarianism, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> um, the, the names don't help sometimes. But I just taught I just taught 12 kids at Emory University last night about complementarianism and I didn't call it complementarianism. All I did was open up Ephesians chapter five, verses 22 through 33. And I talked about the gospel and how it shapes the relationship between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. That's all I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wasn't browbeating egalitarians and it certainly wasn't bashing homosexuals. It was just about giving them a theology of marriage and showing them how the gospel shapes biblical manhood and womanhood and the dynamics of a church. Um, and I, and, and that's, you know, I, Beth Moore claims to be a complementarian and I believe she is in some ways a complementarian. She submits to the authority of her husband. And so we have to at least give her that where she does affirm she affirms very basic things about manhood and womanhood. I think the differences is the differences are kind of how that works itself out in the context of the local church. And that's why I think it's, it's not helpful to call Beth Moore a heretic hmm. uh, as some people have done. Yeah. I, I just, that's where I think we just need to really sit down and have a rational conversation. Um, well, I just think say that, you know, we call people that we don't agree with heretics. I think, and I think it goes back to the polarization. It goes back to the sensationalism. And I think it, it we we have forgotten, and I don't know where, and I'm, I was joking about ESPN. I don't know where it came from, but I just feel like we have forgotten that we can be congenial with those that we disagree with. And that doesn't mean that we're compromising what we believe or have become convicted by. And I think yeah. that that's unfortunate because that has led to a lot of these conversations divulging into um, just just sour debates of, you know, I'm saying this one thing and you're saying this other thing. It's like an, an unstoppable force meeting an immovable object where both are, like you said earlier, they're talking past each other. And and I don't mean to like just summarize all of what we're saying into a nice historical quote, but I'm going to anyways, um, because oh, wow. there's a quote it. that I, <laughs> well, because I, I, I've, I came across it. I, I was reading uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse's 
commentary on Romans several years ago, and he was, of course, the uh, historic pastor of the historic church in Philadelphia, 10th Presbyterian. And um, he he has this in one of one of his books, one of the volumes on Romans, and, and it's always stuck with me. And I think it's more apropos now than it ever is, has been before. And he writes this, he says, Donald Barnhouse's writing, Protestantism is sometimes accused of being divided into a great many divisions, which are more apparent than real. But there is a sense in which we are divided, even as the north wall of a building is separate and distinct from the west wall. Is it not true that though one stone may be in the north wall a hundred feet away from the corner, and another stone may be in the west wall a hundred feet from that same corner, the place where the walls touch is at the corner? I'll meet you at the corner, and I can say to every man in Christ, I'll meet you at the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's, <laughs> and again, I don't mean to be reductive, but if Jesus is our chief cornerstone, then these conversations don't need to be uh, devolved into combative conflicts between people that actually agree on who their cornerstone is. And I feel like that's what's getting lost. And that's what I'm burdened by in terms of what I write about, what I even preach about too, because a lot of the things that people are talking about and conversing about in a lot of these online blogospheres is, is not the rhetoric that's being spoken in your church. Um, I don't feel like, at least in my context, a lot of people are up in arms about complementarianism and, and egalitarianism. It's more practical, I think, than that. It's just how does the gospel influence me when I'm going through cancer. Um, it's not so heady. And I'm not saying that we can't have these, you know, ivory tower conversations because they're good and right and, and just, but I think shepherds need to smell more like sheep. Yeah, you're, well, you just, yeah, I mean, if we're going to have conversations about race and we're going to have conversations about gender, we better have them through the lens of Christ as our as our substitute who who paid our debt and who wiped our iniquities clean and whom we have who sits at the right hand of the Father and who we proclaim as Lord. I mean that's you know, mm. that that's why we you know that's that's a good rule, Brad. That's that's why we need to always remember that if we ever if we ever care to have an, a reasonable discussion about complementarianism it better not end with, well, then men, this is what men do and women can't, and that's the truth. You know, it needs to end with, <laughs> well, here's why we believe men are called to be an authority. It's mm. not because they're superior. It's not because they're, um, they're, 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 they're lords over women. It's not because they're any more or heirs of the kingdom than women are. It's simply because their role as ordained by God is to reflect the self-sacrificial leadership of Christ over his church and, mm. and who gave himself up for that, the bride who gave, who, who served her and washed her. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I think we can have these, we can have conversations about social issues so long as we always have them through the, the lens of 
Christ giving himself for the church and, 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 and dying uh, for sinners. That's, that's, that's why I love having conversations with about manhood and womanhood, especially with all these, these college kids recently at our churches, because they're just, they've so many of them have never, ever heard about what, you know, they like last night during the, our Q and a, they want all, they want to know all about homosexuality. Um, you know, well, I don't just start with homosexuality. I take them back to Genesis chapter two. Um, and the, and the two shall become one flesh. And then I take them to Ephesians five and I, and I show them about why the man is called to be the head of the woman. And then I walk them through the gospel and I, and I walk them through how the church submits to the, to the headship of Christ and how the, and Christ gives himself up for the bride and how the man is called to live self-sacrificially and giving him his life for the bride. And by the time I've walked them through a theology of marriage, then we can tackle homosexuality. And by that time, hopefully they understand why homosexuality is an unnatural aberration of God's design for marriage. Um, so I, I think that you're right. It's, it's, we should never, we should never let social issues detract from the integrity of the gospel. And when we address social issues, we should always do so through the gospel, um, which is, you know, I think why this is being hashed out. Because I think each side, race, gender, I think each side of the issue is going to tell you that they're doing this because of the gospel. Mm. Um, and I think if we listen carefully, the side that's going to articulate the gospel and emphasize the gospel, I think that's the con- that's I think that's the side that is going to have a little bit more credibility because you know to your point, um, the the Southern Baptist Convention only exists. Baptist denomination ex- associations, state conventions, they exist for the promotion of the gospel and the advancement of God's kingdom and the preaching of the word. That's why they exist. So if we can't if we can't have a conversation about the gospel, then we've really really forgetting the very reason why Baptists agreed to get together in the first place. Hmm. So well, and I think too. Um, well, I'll just we can close in a minute. <laughs> but I I've been reading through a collection of essays by our beloved J.R.R. Tolkien. Of course, mm. one of them is. In his On Fairy Stories, he writes a lot about this idea, and this is this has been repeated a lot of times in evangelical circles, uh, but this idea of the eucatastrophe and this idea of this incredible marvel coming out of great, um, great mayhem, so to speak, in this uh, at the this is kind of what he has defined as, and when he writes in there, he talks about. Um, he talks about how the Christian story is the great eucatastrophe of of mankind, of man's of man's salvation, and that he writes mm. the birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. The resurrection, Tolkien continues, is the eucatastrophe of the story of the incarnation. And I think what I mean by that is the fact that we can have these social conversations, but let's not forget that we. Uh, if we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ coming to save us from our sins by becoming a human, by becoming a person that was wrapped in 
in flesh yet without sin, who then died to take that sin away from us. Uh, we have the greatest, quote, fairy story ever told. Um, and that's the story we need to be championing and telling and shouting. And, and the social conversations are good, but we have the greatest story ever told. And we're, we have been commissioned uh, as pastors, as preachers. We've been commissioned as Christians to, to preach it and to uh, tell others about it. And I think that's, that's what I want to, <laughs> I would rather be known for that than anything else. Amen. Amen. We got to keep the, the first thing, the first thing and keep the, keep our ministry simple, which I think is why I commend mm. you for, you got You're, you're a simple guy, Brad. I like that you've, you've cut <laughs> out the, not, not necessarily all people called to do so, but I'm glad that you have cut out Twitter, at least for this season, because um, I think you, you did so for pretty noble reasons and, um, for devotional reasons. And, um, I think there's, you know, we're, we're, we're just, we're called to live simple God honoring Christ centered lives. And well, that's it for today's episode of ministry minded. Thanks again to Abby for coming on the show and being willing to chat with me for a few minutes. I hope that you've been blessed by this show and I hope that you will continue to, uh, to look at these matters through a new and in hope and encouraging and a hopeful light. Uh, thanks so much for listening though. If you like what you just heard, uh, be sure to subscribe to this show. You can do so on Apple podcasts and on Spotify and on anchor FM. Uh, if you're feeling gracious today, you can leave me a review. Five star ones are really appreciated. Appreciated. Uh, I really appreciate those who are uh, leaving some feedback for me. Uh, but thank you as always for listening and for commenting and for subscribing. I'll see you on the next episode, guys. Blessings.